Welcome to this RSAGP podcast where we'll be talking about domestic violence and the importance of accurate and thorough documentation in a general practice setting. My name is Jane Brabban. I'm a general practitioner in Orange in the central west of New South Wales, where sadly domestic violence rates are amongst the highest in the state. I work as a forensic examiner at the hospital as well um, for the on-call sexual assault service and we provide acute medical, forensic and psychological care to victims following a sexual assault. And I'm, enjo- I'm joined by my two esteemed colleagues, both highly respected in the field of forensic medicine and very knowledgeable, Dr Ellie Friedman and Dr Kathy Kramer. And I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, Jane. My name is Ellie Friedman. I'm a medical forensic examiner at Northern Sydney Sexual Assault Service in St. Leonard's. And I also work in a statewide education capacity at ECAV, which is the Education Centre Against Violence. Welcome, Ellie. Hello, team. Uh, I'm Associate Professor Cathy Kramer. I'm a specialist in clinical forensic medicine. I work in rural New South Wales. Thank you, Cathy. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands we are meeting from today and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the various lands people are listening from and welcome and acknowledge our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander colleagues who may be listening. Well, I can honestly say, and perhaps I can speak for other GPs, that when I'm looking after a victim of domestic violence, I feel some anxiety around documentation. What should I record? What words should I use? What, if anything, should I not write down? How much detail do I need? How will my documentation lead to best outcomes for my patient? And how will my notes best serve me if this ends up in court? Well, we know that taking thorough, accurate medical notes is essential for practicing good medicine any day of the week. Uh, A commitment to good documentation is an ethical obligation and a requirement for our registration. But specifically in domestic violence consultations, quality documentation is part of our toolkit for providing optimal patient care. From naming domestic violence, for example, putting pen to paper can be useful to validate someone's experience for what it is. Or if we aren't quite there yet, documenting our suspicions can help future doctors who may have similar suspicions. Documentation over time can give us an idea of a timeline and help us recognise patterns of violent behaviour, perhaps an escalation of violence that needs attention. Similarly, documenting our patient's stage of change will allow us to recognise evolution of their readiness for action over time and guide our approach to supporting them. Documenting our, our assessment of someone's safety and any plans to enhance patient safety is important medico-legally. Of course, good notes and up-to-date records help when we're communicating with other agencies and health professionals and when we are fulfilling our child protection mandatory reporting obligations. Then there is the going to court. Writing scant notes unfortunately won't make that possibility go away. In fact, when doctors are required to provide expert testimony, it is best to have thorough detailed notes to help prepare and to optimise legal outcomes for our patients. So we're going to explore these these aspects of documentation through three cases. Um, We've taken them and adapted them slightly and they're from the New South Wales Domestic Violence Safety Assessment Tool Guide. So let's start with case one. This is Julie. Julie is a patient who is seeking treatment for a badly sprained elbow. 
She reports that her partner, Craig, has been violent towards her and caused her to fall over during an argument. Julie tells you that her fear of Craig is increasing and that she is considering moving out. Given Julie's disclosure, you ask some additional questions and then tell Julie you are concerned there is a current domestic violence threat. You seek Julie's consent to share her information with a domestic violence support service. You're not aware of any formal assessment tools, but confidently identify that the context is domestic violence. Using your professional judgment and Julie's own perception of her level of threat, you identify that Julie is at risk of harm. So Ellie, what role does documentation have so far in this case? And what are the important elements of documentation? So I think that we need to think about each episode, each time we see a patient, um, our standard documentation procedure. So when we see a patient, whatever they're presenting with, we need to be documenting clearly in the notes what they've come in with, what they've said, and what our plan is. And really, if we're responding to violence, it's no different. But we need to be aware that the documentation we're taking serves not only the purpose of good clinical care, but also helps us think about our medico-legal obligations. So um, making sure that if there are any um, future legal cases, that we've got good documentation around that, but also our obligations to keep our, our duty of care to keep our patients safe. So I think, as you said in the beginning, we'll be, when we see a patient, we'll also be relying on previous documentation, what people have written before. So it's really important that if we have concerns, whether they're a uh, disclosure of violence, which we've got in this case, or suspicions of violence, that we have documented something in the notes so that the next person to see that patient has got that information. And we know very clearly um, from things like the Domestic Violence Death Review that poor communication between service providers is where people fall through the cracks. So I think although we're often very nervous to um, name things as violence, especially when there isn't a disclosure, we're not doing anyone a great service by not being explicit about what our concerns are. So coming back to Julie's case, um, clearly we're going to document that injury that we've seen. Um, and the injury documentation is very important, um, even if the um, injury is a minor one and one that might not need a lot of medical care. We need to document that, as I said before, for any um, future or current legal proceedings, because that is some um, evidence that Julie has come to you following an injury. So we need to document what we saw and what she told us. And we also need to document Julie's account of the violence that led to that injury. If possible, in her own words, if you feel more comfortable using quotation marks, we're not interpreting what she says. We're documenting very clearly a history. And we're documenting that as we would a history of anything else. If a patient comes in and tells you they've been getting chest pain, you don't have any empirical evidence of the chest pain, but we don't tend to say that they have alleged they're getting chest pain or we don't put the chest pain in inverted commas. So Julie has told you that she had um, that her partner caused her to trip during a fight and that's when she fell and hurt her elbow. We write that clearly. That's what she's told us. And we have no more empirical evidence, but no less than we do of other symptoms that we record for our patients. So that's really important. Um, 
I would then be um, so documenting the injury, documenting what Julie has told us about this incident and um, what her concerns about Craig's behaviour are. Um, I would document both um, Julie's own perception of her risk, but also my causes for concern. Again, you know, just as when we're making a diagnosis, we might get a constellation of symptoms that don't mean anything to our patient, but to us they're meaningful, I would document the things that stood out to me. And I think Kathy's going to take us through what some of those things might be. And I would document very clearly what plans I have in place for me to be for any safety planning around Julie, other services she might go to. And again, Kathy's going to talk about that. But for me in my clinical practice, I would be documenting very clearly what plans I have for follow up with Julie and what plans I have if Julie is unable to follow up. So I may say I want to see her again in a week to check out how her elbow is going. But if she fails to um, come to that follow up appointment, what contract, what arrangement do we have for me to be able to either contact her or contact other services that may be involved in her care? Thank you. And Kathy, so we, we've gauged from the patient that she feels that she's at risk. Um, the practitioner has, has a gut feeling that she's at risk. But what formal safety assessment planning and documentation can we use? So I, I'd actually like to offer a word of caution about risk assessments and about safety planning. The more I know about these, the more I'm convinced that doing them properly requires a really high level of knowledge and skill. Because ideally, you need to be able to elicit a reliable history of all the risk factors that might be present for a serious adverse outcome. And you need to properly put those risks into context in some pattern of abuse so that you can give them the appropriate weight. And then you're going to need to work with the patient to develop tailored safety strategies that are going to look different depending on whether the victim is still in a relationship or leaving it or whether there are children or not and so on. So my current thinking is we should be able to identify risk and we should be able to provide some safety tips at a fairly basic level and then we're going to want to involve a specialist domestic violence service as early as possible. Or you may choose to get appropriate training so you can kind of do that higher level um, care yourself, of, of course. Um, having said that, obviously you need to find out whether there's imminent risk. Can this person in my consulting room right now safely go home today? And certainly there are also going to be times when you're going to have to hold the patient because they're unwilling to go to a DV service or it's just not safe for them to do so. So when it comes to risk assessment, there's evidence to support each of three options. Patient's gut feel, your gut feel, and you know a formal validated risk tool. So with patient self-assessment, ask the patient, you know, what they think. And research shows that that women, when women think they're going to come to serious harm, they're usually right. And when they think they're safe, they're mostly right. And this is, I think, far and away the easiest approach to use in, in a general practice setting. Or you can use your clinician gut feel. So in the case of Jane, you know, the, the GP came out of that consultation very worried and that's good enough. And the more experienced you are treating DV, you know, the more reliable your gut feel is going to be. Or you can use, as, as Jane was just alluding to, a formal you know, risk assessment tool. And 
most states and territories, they have a risk assessment tool and it'll be used the same tool across the sector. So hospital social workers and police and um, domestic and family violence services will use the same tool so they can all talk the same language to each other. And um, I'll put links in the show notes uh, to the various you know, state specific tools. So in my state of New South Wales, it's called the Domestic Violence Safety Assessment Tool, DVSAT. In its current form, you know, there are 26 questions and at the end of that, you're going to score the patient at threat or at serious threat. And then there's a pathway for referring those patients at serious threat to, you know, a formal safety assessment meeting and, and there's supportive legislation um, around the information sharing there. But of course, that's just New South Wales and I, I don't want to go down a particular state state rabbit hole. So yes, you know, there, there is a tool in all likelihood in your state or, or territory that's worth having a look at, but, uh, you know, never ignore the patient's gut feel. Yeah, so it sounds like using a tool can be can be handy for communication purposes as well. Uh, apart from the tool, apart from your gut feeling, and apart from the patient's general assessment of their risk, are there any specific risk factors that are red flags for serious harm? Mm. So if you printed out half a dozen, you know, risk assessment tools, you'd, you'd see that they're very same here. They've got a lot of the same um, factors over and over again, because those are the risk factors identified in, in the literature. And the big ones, the key ones you really need to know about are sexual violence, strangulation, threatening or harming pets, uh, jealousy and stalking behaviours, or the perpetrator threatening to kill themselves. So, um, you know, those are some of the biggies, but, but unsurprisingly, uh, you know, threats to harm the patient, the escalating pattern of violence, access to weapons, um, stresses on the perpetrator, like financial troubles, mental health issues, you know, they're also going to be um, key factors. If you don't want to wrote, learn a long list uh, and then worry that you might not remember everything, I think the, the big factor, the big one here, it's coercive control. It's not unusual for there to be no history of physical violence or only, you know, relatively low level violence before a man kills his partner. What there always is, however, is a history of serious, co serious coercive control. So if the perpetrator is controlling every aspect of the victim's life, that's the risk factor that you never want to miss. Yeah, coercive control is something that many of us have heard of. What does it look like in a relationship? Mm. You know, that's what we saw with with Hannah Clark in, in Queensland, that very, very tragic case. He controlled her finances, what she wore, who she talked to online, where she went and so on. And there was no actual physical violence in that case before the murder. If you have any doubt in your head about whether something constitutes coercive control, I think a really simple line in the sand is just ask yourself, does this behaviour diminish someone's life? Okay, this man dictates what his wife can and can't wear. Does that diminish her life? Yes, that's a tactic of, of coercive control. And the greater the level of control or the more the control is ramping up, the greater the risk. And, and, and that's why separation or the threat of separation is such a high risk time for the woman because his control is being threatened. And I, I, I will say, look, I am using he for, for perpetrator and she um, for victim because that represents the majority abuse, but of course you can get, um, you know, abuse in same sex and other relations. Cathy, you mentioned separation. Would you, is it fair to say that separation is an independent risk factor for serious threat of harm? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so in terms of risk, I'm looking at coercive control. In, in terms of, you know, uh, how imminent the risk is, separation is, is a big one for, uh, you know, violence in the short term. And it's worth adding that, you know, when we're talking about separation, that's in the eye of the perpetrator. When you think about the last relationship you were in that ended, it's really the case that one of you suddenly decided to end it and there was a nice clean ending and that was that we are separated. I mean, it's usually a, a process and unfolds over time. So for one offender, just the thought that their partner might leave might be enough to set them off. While for another, the violence might happen, say, two years later when the court finally gives their ex-partner custody and now it's real that this has ended. Um like using a formal DV risk assessment tool, and if your state one has one, a child protection risk assessment tool, you know, there are easy ways to document risk as long as you know how to use them properly. But if we come back to Julie, here we've got a patient whose fear level is increasing. Our risk assessment is high because hers is high, but we could also use a formal tool. And if we did, that would help us identify all of the risk factors that might be present in her situation. Okay, so Julie's risk is assessed as high. How do we approach safety planning? So I think of it in three steps. If step one is assessing the risk to Julie, step two is thinking about safety, step three is documenting all of this. Now, safety planning is a whole other conversation. As I said it, earlier, it looks, it looks different for a woman who's still in the relationship compared to one who is leaving or is recently left. It's quite a specialised area of practice. And, you know, safety tips cover things as different as, you know, moving out of a really dangerous room like the kitchen or bathroom if you think things are going to kick off um, if you're staying or, you know, taking different routes to work every day um, if you're leaving. But I will, again, in the show notes, I will put um, a link to a plan that I think is, is, is particularly comprehensive Rather than tying yourself up into knots, how do I do good safety planning? You know, the good news is women themselves have usually put a lot of thought into this already. And, and our job, you know, can be more to, to, you know, explicitly discuss this with them and validate their strategies and maybe we'll give them some extra tips uh, as well. And then document everything, um, you know, that took place in the consultation. So I talk about, you know, steps one to three, you know, assess the risk. Uh, think about safety, document everything as if that was like, that's it. Now I've, you know, ticked all the boxes and, and, you know, done what I need to do. But of course, the best way to think that is the cycle. That's because risk levels change over time and safety plans are going to have to change accordingly. So an essential element of the consultation, I think, and, and therefore an essential element of your documentation is scheduling the next risk assessment. Who's going to do it? You know, you or a DV service. When? Should you have a preset schedule of, you know, reviews? Are we going to touch base every week, couple of weeks, months or whatever, or or should it be based around some red flags? So you might discuss some of those risk factors and say, look, you know, if we're starting to talk about sexual violence if, or strangulation or whatever, we need to rethink your risk because we're entering a whole new territory. So preset reviews, red flags for, you know, the trigger review um, or both, that's something you can negotiate uh, with the client. Yeah, so so making that safety net and, and providing a clear approach to how that's going to work with Julie. That mm. sounds good. Okay, let's let's move on to case two. Uh, case two, we have Jamila. She attends your surgery after being sexually assaulted by her partner, Salam. You are not trained in the use of a threat identification tool, but based on the evidence of physical injury and her psychological state and the fact that she's been sexually assaulted, you believe that Jamila is at serious threat. 
The doctor asks Jamila for an assessment of her, of her own level of threat and Jamila says that she is worried Salam will seriously harm her. Jamila also has two children aged seven and five and she's worried that Salam will take the children away if she makes a report. Kathy, what factors in this case make you concerned? So with Jamila, we've got a patient who's worried her partner is going to seriously harm her. So uh, we're going to be assessing the risk as, as high. And you could end it there. Uh, or again, you could use a formal tool. And if I used a formal tool, I'd see that, uh, that sexual assault and possible threats to kidnap the children are some additional risk factors. And a, you know, a tool would mean I've got a, a structured way to think about other risk factors that might be, uh, might be present. You know, so what's the bigger picture here? Uh, for example, what's Jamila's visa status? And is he using that uh, to, to control her? So regardless, um, you know, step one is all about assessing risk. But here we've, we've got more than one person at risk because we've got Jamila's children. So step 1A, assess the risk to Jamila, that's high. Step 1B, assess the risk to her children. And that's going to, inf going to inform step two, which is safety planning, which can, in this case is going to be safety planning for the mother and safety planning for the children, which of course is going to involve some consideration whether you need to make a, a mandatory child protection report. Step three, document all of that. And then of course, you know, rinse and repeat. Okay, so um, what steps would you take now? All right, so you know, literally what I'm going to do with Jamila right now is I'm going to ask the big question, can you safely go home now? And if the answer is no, then where is she and the kids going to go? Ah, oh, to family, to friends, to a shelter, to police. If, on the other hand, she is going home, we're going to review her safety plan. Because remember, odds are she'll have one and we'll kind of, you know, fine tune it a bit. We're going to see about what we can do about getting services involved. Now, this, this can be quite a challenge uh, for a victim who's experienced a lot of co coercive control. How do you actually reach out to a challenge without that? So reach out to a, to a service without that, you know, challenging the perpetrator's sense of control and, you know, escalating the violence and, you know, you reach out for help and, in fact, that puts you more at risk. So, you know, what can I, what can I do creatively to, to help out here? For example, could she use a phone at the practice to call a, a domestic violence service and that way the number's not going to show up on her phone? So once I've got a handle on immediate safety, I would like another consultation relatively soon with her. I'd also like a consultation relatively soon with the two children now that I know that there's domestic violence in the home. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming they're my patients, but if they're not, I'd ask Jamila's permission to let her GP know about um, the, the violence, if it's safe to do so. And it might not be if, um, if it's the perpetrator who tends to bring them to appointments. So with the kids, you've got safety point of view, medical point of view. Safety point of view, you know, is he harming them? Does he threaten to harm them? Do they get harmed um, when they, you know, try to intervene between mum and dad? How much of the physical violence are they witnessing? Do I need to make a mandatory report? And then from a medical point of view, well, no two ways about it. Uh, the kids will be being impacted by the domestic violence. So they'll have their own medical needs as a result of that. Now, I, I want to have a look at their, their physical health status. I'm looking for the effects of chronic stress on their development, on, on their mental health, and I'm looking for ways to strengthen that protective mother-child bond. And Ellie, what documentation would be important? So in this case, again, as I said before, we are coming to this as a GP, as a primary care provider, and we need to have that lens of 
clinical management of the patient in front of us at the top of mind. In this case, Jamila's disclosed to us a sexual assault. Now, if it's a recent sexual assault within the past seven days, um, there is an opportunity for her to access a specialist sexual assault service um, and have um, forensic um, recording around that. So in most states and territories, there's a mechanism for accessing a sexual assault service either through police in some states, but in most states and territories through health and to have a specialist sexual assault examination and forensic recording. Now the sexual assault forensic recording is um, largely, um, is often largely around um, finding DNA and linking perpetrators to victims. Now, in this case, in the case of domestic violence, that's not necessarily top of mind, but that doesn't mean we should discount the valuable nature of um, getting Jamila into a specialist sexual assault service. And there are a few advantages there. Um, one is that if she's someone who's reluctant to link into a domestic violence service, um, linking into a specialist medical, forensic and psychosocial sexual assault service may well be a good way of getting her linked in with um, services that are used to dealing or experience in dealing with people who've experienced sexual violence as part of domestic violence. And we need to remember that both sexual assault is a common part of domestic violence, but also that domestic violence is a common part of sexual assault. So there's a lot of crossover, probably more crossover than we know, because often people will disclose one, but not the other. So getting her into a specialised violence service may meet some of those safety planning and counselling needs that Cathy's already alluded to. The second is that having a sexual assault forensic examination isn't all about the DNA. Um, sometimes we have to remind ourselves that. But what a sexual assault forensic examination does is it also takes a very detailed corroborative history of the sexual assault. And it also gives the examiner an opportunity to ask about and look for any accompanying injuries. So we know that most sexual assaults don't cause any injuries, but there are some injuries, either genital injuries, which again are not that common, but also some injuries that we see commonly in sexual assault, strangulation, marks of restraint. And we also know that any um, injury to the head, neck and torso in a patient who hasn't experienced an accident is, is likely to be intentional. So there's some specific patterns of injury that sexual assault forensic examiners are going to be experienced at looking for, eliciting information about and documenting. What that means, if Jamila's happy to go down that pathway, is that we've got an independent corroborative um, account of the sexual assault and any accompanying violence and injury that can be stored safely with the sexual assault service until Jamila is ready to release that information to police. Now, as I said, in some states and territories, there's not a mechanism for that sitting until she's ready to disclose. And so things can be a bit more complicated. But generally, that's a really good possibility for her. And it may also be an opportunity for her to ask some questions about her health that she doesn't necessarily want to bring into the general practice arena. We do know that although GPs are generally the first port of call for people experiencing domestic violence and sexual violence, sometimes questions about STIs or risk of pregnancy may be seen as um, too personal or too embarrassing to ask in that context. So it's quite good to have an alternative health practitioner as well. 
Now, Jamila may not be ready to go down that pathway, may not recognize what's happened to her as being a sexual assault, you know, the kind, because I think that there's a mythology around sexual assault being something that's perpetrated by strangers down dark alleyways in the middle of the night. And that mythology um, impacts victims as much as it impacts the rest of the population. So she may not see that as a service she needs. She may be too scared to go to that service, as Kathy alluded to. Victims of domestic violence are often very sensitive to things that will trigger an escalation in behavior of their offending partner. If she doesn't want to, then that doesn't preclude you, whether she does or doesn't want to go to a specialist sexual assault service, that doesn't preclude you from taking a clear history of the assault. You don't need to go into the nitty gritty detail of what went where, um, unless that's something that Jamila wants to share. That's necessary in a sexual assault forensic examination because the examiner needs to look for DNA in certain places, but we're not doing that. So just a clear history of the events that led up to the assault of the assault and of any impacts, both physical or psychological, that they've had on Jamila, and then of any a doc, clear documentation of any injuries that you see. And again, I'd be asking Jamila if there are any injuries. I would be asking her permission to look for injuries. And if I found any, I would be asking her permission to document them. So I would again um, have a clear history, a clear examination, and then some clear documentation of what the plan going forward would be. So as Kathy said, I need to think about um, what I'm recording about um, safety conversations with Jamila, what she's what she's able to put in place, what we're able to put in place to protect her safety. And very clearly, she's got young children. I am a mandatory reporter for child safety. I need to very clearly document that I have made an assessment of the safety of the children and any action I've taken about that. And again, it's going to be state specific, but um, you're all aware of what the child protection requirements in your state are, and those need to be followed through in this case. Ellie, Jamila has expressed her worry about the, the power that Jamal has, particularly regarding the children. What if what if she asks you not to, to document the domestic violence? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think this prompts a conversation um, because I think that, as we've said, victims are often very anxious about um, how the systems that are in place can be used against them, how documentation um, cannot can be not only not protective, but actually can be used by a perpetrator as evidence that, you know, she's an unfit mother or, you know, that she doesn't want to alert her partner that, that she's even made this disclosure. So I think that there's often a lot of anxiety. So a really frank discussion with Jamila about what are her concerns? Is she concerned around privacy and confidentiality? Is she concerned that her partner's going to see these records and then be alerted that she has told you? Is she concerned that someone else is going to get hold of those records or that those records are going to be seen by anyone who sees her children? So I think there's a whole host of concerns, some of which we can allay. So we can slowly talk people through who has access to their notes. Um, some of those are very real. So we know that um, if there's a child protection, if, for example, her partner makes a child protection complaint against Jamila, her notes may be looked at and there are there is case history that 
notes from a mother's file have been used, um, especially if she's got a history of drug and alcohol use or of mental health issues have been used um, in a family court in a way that is not constructive. So that's another reason why we need to be very careful about what we write. So we need to have a discussion with her about what her concerns are and we need to be very open to understanding those concerns because they, they, they're some we can allay, they're some that may be very real. We then need to have a discussion with her about what we want to record and how we're going to record it. And I would argue that good documentation, clear documentation of what Jamila has told you, clear documentation of the action she is taking to parent her children and the action she is taking to protect her children should be protective in any ongoing um, criminal justice or family court matter. But I think we can discuss with her and to a certain extent we can negotiate what we do document and what we don't document. And I have to say I'm not often in a position where I'm documenting diagnosis domestic violence because my diagnosis is that the patient has presented to me following a sexual assault and the sexual assault is in the context of ongoing um, you know, violence or control and I'm documenting those dot points. It's leading to a picture that's suggestive of domestic violence. But domestic violence is not that diagnosis in of itself. So I think that we can be um, very clear with Jamila about what the privacy and confidentiality um, standards within healthcare records are, but also about what the limits to those are. But also hopefully get her permission to document a clear account of what she's told us and a clear account of um of our plan with her and that should be something that is constructive and useful. At the bottom line we have an obligation as healthcare practitioners to make clear documentation for all our patients so that we cannot not document things that would be in breach of our professional standards. So we are walking a bit of a tightrope, but I do think that it's a really important um, decision to engage your patients in. Read back to them what you're proposing to record. Check they're okay with that. Think about the things that are negotiable and the things that are non-negotiable. Yeah, and if we're curious, we can, we can find out what their real underlying worries are. And, and as you said, often allay those and, and yes. reinforce that they are they're seeking help is, is protecting them and their family. Absolutely. And I think another concern is often, and I think Kathy alluded to this, is that often the GP is a family GP. So just making sure that people know that even if you're seeing the same doctor, that the notes are separate. But sometimes you have to take very practical steps and suggest that, um, that, that Jamila's GP may not be the best person to be her husband's GP as well. There are advantages and disadvantages to, to breaking up that care. But if that's a very real concern, um, then we, we might need to take practical steps and work with Jamila to work out what's best for her. Often that means that the person who's experiencing the violence is the person who's disadvantaged, who has to go around and find new care and rebroker relationships. So I'm not suggesting that should be our first port of call. But again, having that thing, um, having an attitude of curiosity and problem solving rather than one of ticking boxes is what's going to be helpful in this case. Thank you. And we now have case three, the case of Pilar. 
Um, and she has been your patient for six years and you've been managing her anxiety and depression in the context of relationship difficulties. Pilar and Gustav have been living together in a small town in regional New South Wales. Gustav is very controlling and emotionally abusive towards Pilar and there have been occasions during the relationship where Gustav has been physically abusive towards her. On one occasion, Gustav seriously assaulted Pilar, but she didn't seek police assistance at the time or legal protection. The relationship is experiencing difficulties due to Pilar confessing to an affair with an ex-partner. The affair ceased months ago and Gustav and Pilar are making efforts to rebuild their relationship. It has not been very successful and Gustav's behaviour is becoming more and more controlling and abusive towards Pilar, while Pilar begins to spend more time at work and with friends to avoid confrontations. More recently, Pilar has noticed that Gustav is monitoring her emails and her mobile phone. In the previous week, Gustav's behaviour has become more threatening and one evening Pilar comes home from work and they fight. She sees you the next day with a split lip. Ellie, tell us, what, what role does documentation have here? So again, like the previous two cases, we're, we're coming back to we go, our starting point is going to be responding to the thing that the patient came in with. In this case, it's a split lip. So we're going to take a history of how did that split lip occur and we're going to document that injury. As we've said before, documenting an injury is really important, even if we don't think it was something minor like a split lip that doesn't need any medical treatment. If we don't document that, then um, if that in in ongoing legal matters becomes an important part of a criminal justice or another legal matter, then the fact that we haven't documented it is not very helpful. So we want to document it as clearly as we can. Um, we want to make quite get quite a detailed um, history of the events that led up to the split lip and I think it's worth thinking about the fact that often we say the the lip you know she she got a split lip during a fight now that's not particularly helpful is it because a fight implies that there's been an equal um, you know force between two people you know two people having a fight are equal partners in that one fights and the other fights back we know in domestic violence situations, often the um, victim of domestic violence uses violence back against their partner. But what we do know is that that's usually on a background of ongoing abuse. So that the victim will be um, experiencing ongoing physical and psychological abuse and at some point will snap and hit back. And often we see, especially in um, criminal matters, when victims look for AVOs, that this is taken um, as evidence that there's been an, an equally violent relationship. I'm sure we've all heard that anecdotally as well. Oh, that's not really abuse. You know, she gives as good as she gets. Um, you know, they're, they're just both violent. They've both got a problem. So we need to be very clear about what the events leading up to the fight were. So taking us back a step, Pilar has been our patient for six years and during that time we have been managing um, mental health, we've been managing anxiety and depression and it sounds as though we've had quite a detailed um, account from Pilar of some of the relationship difficulties she's been experiencing. So we may not have from day one when we first met her have flagged this as is this a case of domestic violence, is this a case of 
um, emotional abuse within a relationship. But we need to make sure that as we go through, we've documented um, what Pilar has told us about what's going on in the relationship and very specifically any instances that, as Kathy said, those instances that sound like coercive control, that anything that's happened to Pilar from Gustav that has diminished her, things she's told you that have led you to realize that there's a pattern. Now, we don't see the pattern. None of us sees a pattern on day one. But after six years, we're hopefully being able to look back and see that there's a pattern of ongoing behavior, which enables us to reflect to Pilar that what we think is happening to her, what we think she is experiencing, is something we would call coercive control. And that is something seen in domestic violence. So that gives us a really clear way of reflecting back to Pilar what we think may be going on in her relationship. Now, it's clear from what you said that Pilar at the moment wants to stay in that relationship. And that's fine. We can support her in that. But we do need to be very transparent and reflect our concerns to her. We, we're not collusive. If she says, I want to make this relationship work and I want to stay in this relationship, we can say, great, I need to talk with you about how you stay safe within a relationship where there is ongoing abuse and violence. So it's okay to support someone in a decision that you don't necessarily agree with. We're not going to tell her that she has to leave or she won't get our support. But it is really important that we're able to reflect back to her what we think is happening. The thing, um, as a clinician, so that's kind of your, your legal um, domestic violence hat on. As a clinician, I've got someone who I've been managing for six years with depression and anxiety who's in a domestic violence relationship. It's really important that we don't lose sight of the health impacts of domestic violence on women. We know that women who are experiencing, women and men, people who are experiencing domestic violence have adverse health outcomes and a big one of those is around mental health. So we can't just say, oh, you just got anxiety and depression because you're in the relationship. We need to be very actively managing that mental health. We know even after people have left domestic violence relationships, they have ongoing um, sequelae of post-traumatic stress disorder, ongoing anxiety, ongoing depression. Sometimes um, it can be hard to pull apart exactly what's causing what, but it's really important that we address that, that we name that, that we talk to Pilar about her mental health and that we manage that really well. And that we're also managing her physical health, that we're making sure that she's not um, part of the control and abuse is not that she's um, missing access to medical care that she needs or being gaslit by Gustav, who's telling her that she's mad all the time. Well, she probably is feeling pretty terrible living with someone who's ongoingly emotionally abusive. But we need to be very actively managing that mental health and not just dismissing that as a situational um, thing. So we would be wanting to document clearly um, the presenting complaint, the, the split lip, the things that led up to it, and any actions that we've taken and very clearly reflecting back to Pilar that we have concerns about her level of safety and then working with Pilar to think about, as Kathy said, what does safety look for look like for Pilar in this relationship? Now it sounds like she's planning on staying in the relationship, so that's that's what we're working with. But again, in this one, I'd want a very clear contract of Pilar. Can you come back and see me next week or next month or whenever it's going to work? 
And Pilar, if I don't hear from you, is it okay for me to call you or email you? What's the best or the safest way for me to get in contact with you? Because if I haven't heard from you, I am going to need to follow you up because I have concerns about your safety. So making sure before she walks out the door, we don't have to have a formal documented signed in triplicate plan that she can put on the wall, but we do need to have a very clear contract about when we're going to see her again, that she's got emergency numbers if she needs them, but that if we haven't heard from her, we will be following her up. Yes, if she doesn't follow up, there there may be a number of reasons for that, might Yeah, so um, it might, you know, obviously I think our minds will go to if she's not following up, it's because she's um, at high risk, something terrible's happened to her, she's going to end up, you know, being one of these cases we read about the paper. But it also may be when you start to say, I need to meet with you regularly, that we can actually, to a certain extent, scare people off. So it may not work for her to meet with us regularly. She may be very nervous about what, Gustav will say if he finds out that you're having a regular contact, which is why I think having some kind of discussion about what's going to work for you. Is it okay if I phone you if I haven't heard from you? Sometimes people feel they've over-disclosed, over-shared, and they need to take a little step back. And then she may come back and say, look, everything's fine. Gustav apologized. I think we're, we're good again. And she's a little bit embarrassed about maybe having over-called that. We know that's what the cycle of violence looks like, and that doesn't mean that we go, yeah, that's great, I'll see you next year. So we're still going to be trying to maintain some of that um, boundary setting and that contact with her. But sometimes people find that a bit overwhelming and they need to step away a bit. So making sure you're leaving the door open. But that's also why you need to make sure she's got emergency numbers. So if you she doesn't want to come back and see you next week, you at least know if things escalate, she's got numbers of the police, any local um, domestic violence services, any local refuges. And also, I always tell people to think about a good friend or a relative who they could go to and knock on the door and rock up. So things like that. So she's got just a few numbers, a few people that she can be in touch with if things escalate if she doesn't want to come back and see you. Kathy, what's your assessment of risk in this case and how would you document this? You know, straight off the bat we've got coercive control, we've got physical violence that's escalating, we've got jealousy, we've got stalking. So there's certainly risk. And I worry that the the emotional abuse and the social isolation that he's engineered are going to make it harder for her to access help. And further, there are you know there are some gaps in my knowledge that 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 might further heighten the level of threat. So I, I pulled out as my state's risk assessment tool, the DBSAT, to apply it here to see how um, it would work. And it really highlighted to me that I don't know if Gustav has access to guns. I don't know if there's substance use. I don't know if there's been sexual assault or strangulation. So I kind of need to see the big picture here. Um, I can certainly assess her right now as, as being, um, being at risk, but I would be very keen to have a specialist uh, domestic and family violence service involved to take that assessment you know, to the next level. If it's safe, of course, for her to go, which you know is, is an assessment that only she can, she can make. So regardless of uh, whether or not uh, we get specialist service involved, in my notes today, I want to document what I do know about what risk factors are present. And that means when I'm doing my next risk review, I can see what's new, I can see what's changing, or if a you know, colleague is providing care, they've also got a you know, bird's eye view of the, the situation. 
One of the things that's different about this case compared to the previous two is with Pillar, we've got a documentable injury. Obviously, you're going to assess a split lip medically. It doesn't need sutures. Is there damage to the underlying teeth? Could there be a jaw fracture, et cetera, et cetera? But given that this injury has medical legal significance, it pays to document it very, very carefully. Where is it? You know, top lip, bottom lip, right hand side, left hand side. Are there any other features? Um, is the lip swollen? Is the split freshly bleeding? Uh, what about other injuries? For example, as I'm examining this lip and pulling it down, I might find some bruising on the inner aspect of the lip you know, where it's been compressed between the, the tooth and between the fist. Now, look, a bruise like that's trivial injury medically, but it is important forensically. So I'd kind of like to go that, that extra little bit of attention to detail as I'm, as I'm making, my, um, making my notes. Um, and you know, if, if possible, I would like to do a quick top to toe check of PLR, are there any other injuries um, that I can I can document? And all I can say is you'll thank yourself later if you took a little bit of extra time and trouble now. And I think um, Ellie alluded to this earlier, but if, if your practice supports it and if PLR agrees, then photographs can be, um, you know, I think they can be a really useful addition to your notes. Thank you. Now, if we document that this patient is at risk of serious harm, are we potentially liable if something happens to her? That is a tough question. Because that's just not something that's been tested in the courts. Uh, you know, what our duty of care would be to a patient we think is at risk of serious harm, possibly even death, at the hands of a partner whose actions we can't control. Uh, most states and territories have domestic violence death review teams that put out reports, they look at the roles of GPs. And while there's certainly uh, been a bit of constant theme that you know we should know no more, uh, no one's identified this as a particular sort of medical legal threat to us. Uh, anytime I don't have you know legislation or clear case law to, to guide me, I get back to first principles. Not, I think the usual rules of good medical practice apply. If I'm worried this patient's going to come to harm, I'm going to communicate that as clearly as possible as I can. I'm using all of my communication skills and I'm going to document that I made um, the patient aware that I was very worried about her risk. And I'm going to document a very, very clear management plan. For example, like Ellie said earlier, how can I safely contact her in the future? If she doesn't show up to a follow-up appointment, what is the safest way, you know, to, to uh, send her uh, a reminder? So, you know, doc, uh, communicate your concerns, have a clear management plan and document that, you know, it's the same thing that you would do for any other, um, you know, uh, situation where you were worried about the patient's, you know, ultimate outcome from, you know, whatever medical condition. Thanks, Cathy. Um, I'd like to... Sincerely, thank you both for this conversation, for sharing your knowledge and experience. Um, I'm going to take home lots from this this chat, but one one thing is that a split lip, in one way, is no different from chest pain, and that we shouldn't shy away from documentation. Um, but on the other hand, it potentially is forensically a little bit different from chest pain, and we we want to err on the side of thoroughness and accuracy in the case that it might end up in the legal system. But also, as a practitioner, there, there is always a bigger picture that we might not fully understand. 
and an attitude of, of curiosity and conscientiousness will, will be what's best for our patients. So I'll let you, the experts have the final words. Um, would you like to give us any take home messages, Kathy? Hmm. Well, and the gist of, of today's podcast has really been around around documentation. So I'm going to stress that it's always important to properly document a patient encounter. This is no different. And we're all familiar with situations where documentation has particular medical legal importance, uh, fitness to drive, for example, or you know ca capacity to uh, um, you know write a will. You know, we, you know we all have experience that we can draw on here about in dealing with consultations that have this medical legal kind of element to them. And we're just going to apply exactly the same principles here. DV is not different to anything else. Good notes, support, good practice, like that's a truism um, and it's just as true here uh, as it always has been. So I'm going to list all of the abuses that she describes to me, make notes about even medically trivial, medically minor injuries, document what I've done in the way of risk assessment and safety tips, make sure the next steps are clear, make your mandatory reports if, if appropriate. I think that's those are the things that I would emphasise. Thanks, Kathy and Ellie. Well, I absolutely agree with all of that. And I think that, that the, 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 my overarching kind of take-home point is be a good doctor because we know, we know that for people who are experiencing DV, if they have a good GP who they trust, who are they are able to disclose that violence to at whatever level, it may just be hints, it may just be tasters, it may just be to see how you respond to it. We know that that relationship can be incredibly important. We know that maintaining physical and mental health in our patients who are experiencing violence is a life, literally a lifeline. So whilst the, the medico-legal stuff can be overwhelming. As Kathy said, it's something we're doing every day, good, clear documentation, and this should be no different good patient communication, maintaining that relationship, maintaining the, the safety and um, healthiness of your patient, your doctor-patient relationship, and documenting that clearly is really the bottom line. So you're, you're all doing it anyway. Um, continue doing it and continue to um, be collaborative and respectful of your patient's experiences and, and document what your that what they tell you document what your impressions are and above and beyond you know maintain that relationship because that's what people really need thank you both so much um be a good doctor i'm going to leave with that message <laughs> and i'll do my best thank you thank you